All right, Ephesians chapter 4, I want to begin reading at verse 1. I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, says the Apostle Paul here, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and, to, uh, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Man, you know, that's, that's just 16 verses. In epistolary literature, the kind of literature we have in the book of Ephesians, is so dense and so concise. I mean, so many thoughts spring out uh, into our lives here and into our hearing. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of limit our focus on just a couple of verses from Ephesians chapter uh, 4 and the 16 verses that we read. All right, let's draw attention now to um, question answers 50 and 51. As we normally do, I'll read the question, and then let's give the answer, all right? And let's uh, give real verbal assent to what we're confessing. So, why is it added, and he sits at the right hand of God? Let's say together. Christ ascended into heaven to manifest himself there as head of his church, through whom the Father governs all things. Then the second question, how does the glory of Christ our head benefit us? First, by his Holy Spirit, he pours out heavenly gifts upon us as members. And second, by his power, he defends and preserves us against all enemies. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you this afternoon to kind of uh, put on your thinking caps and kind of track with me, okay? Because I'm going to be giving you quite a bit of uh, information in the next, oh, say, uh, 10 minutes or 12 minutes or something like that. So I need you to kind of follow me because I'm going to, we're going to be going to, you just going to need to follow a train of thought. So first of all, what I want to do is I want to give some basic explanation to question answers 50 and 51. So yeah, just keep that up there. Go back, if you would, to question, yeah, there you go. All right. Why is it added, and it's in reference to Christ, that he sits at the right hand of God. Now, I want to talk to the kids right now because I'm, I'm always aware of the fact that there are children in our second service. Now, kids, um, when you think of Jesus, and, and, and as, as children, you oftentimes have rich imaginations. 
Um, you, you think about Jesus being seated at the right hand of God. So the impression that you get or the picture you get in your mind is that after Jesus ascends into heaven, he goes to the right hand of his heavenly Father. So let's say the Father is here, and then he comes to the right hand of the Father, and then he, at least my right hand, and he sits down. He doesn't stand like I'm standing. He sits. Now, I'm not going to be dealing with that in the sermon itself, but there's a significance to him not standing but sitting. And I'm just going to give you a heads up during a discussion time. The first question I'm going to ask you, which I want you to think about already, is what's the significance of Jesus sitting rather than standing? So maybe we've wondered that. I mean, he sits down. Why does he sit down? But anyway, you get this picture in your mind of Jesus as this kind of exalted kingly figure, and, and he sits down the right hand of his father. And we have this idea that he's, he's this king, and you get this picture of Jesus with a scepter in his hand and a crown on his head, and he's sitting on a kingly throne. But when the Bible talks about Jesus being seated at the right hand of God, we should not think literally, but what we call figuratively. In other words, it's pointing to the broader concept, not that Jesus is literally sitting down as a king, but he is in a position of rule and power and authority over all things. He's the great king, and as the answer to the catechism puts it, rightly so, he is what we call head of the church. Now, what does it mean that Jesus is not only king, but head of the church? Well, um, the, the, the word headship carries with it, like a king, Christ's exercise of rule and authority and power over us because we're his church. The church is the people of God, right? Church is not the building. Church is not this gym. Church is the assembled people of God. And we come together and we call ourselves the body of Christ, the church of the living God. Okay, so Christ... Um, rules over us, and he exercises authority and power over us. But the word head in the Bible in the New Testament is the word kephale, which carries with it the idea of also being a source of something. And Christ is the source not only of authority and power, but also love, and he's the source of our protection and our preservation and our growth. Now, when you think about that, that's a big deal. Then it's a big deal that Jesus is actually not only our great ascended king at the right hand of God, but he's, he's the head of all of us. This is for our comfort. And we'll get to that during the discussion time as well. Now, moving on, we see in answer 51, if you put that up there, very good. How does the glory of Christ our head benefit us? I can describe to you what it means that Jesus is the right hand of his heavenly father, but we might just say, a little bit crassly, okay, well, so what? What does that really mean for me? What's the, what's the benefit for me? And the Catechism gives a very good answer. And I'm going to go with the second one first. First of all, Christ, by his ascended power, which he exercises at the right hand of God, defends and preserves us against all our enemies. Well, that's a good thing. Because a lot of, the church oftentimes has a lot of problems. <laughs> problems from without that come into the church, sometimes through false teaching, but sometimes there's problems within, right? Sometimes people don't get along well with each other. Sometimes there's tension between the pastor and the church, and sometimes that doesn't always work out. I mean, I mean, we go on and on. But Jesus says, even though the church experiences problems from without or within, I promise you as head of the church, I'm going to care for you, and I'm not going to allow you to go into extinction. How does Jesus put it? Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
That's all wrapped up into Jesus at the right hand of God. One other thing here, you notice that at the right hand of God, once Jesus was there, we read that after 10 days after his, or 50 days after his ascension, what we find is that Jesus poured out his spirit. I'm sorry, not, uh, I confused that. I have to correct myself sometimes. 40 days after his ascension, he was on the earth. Then he ascended 10 days after that. He poured forth his spirit. And he pours out, notice it's not a trickle, but he pours out heavenly gifts upon us, his members. Oh, I like gifts. I like presents. Christmas is coming up. Kids, what kind of presents does he give us? What kind of gifts does Jesus give us at the right hand of God? It's like he's pouring them out. It's like pouring presents upon us. What kind of presents? What kind of gifts? That's what we're going to focus on this afternoon. All right? Now, I'm going to draw your attention back to the book of Ephesians. Now I need you to stick with me for about 10 minutes. Okay? Um, if you can put Ephesians back up there, and I want you to look at uh, this uh, AV guy. Stick with me. Good. Perfect. Look at verse 7 and verse 8, because that's what we're going to focus on this afternoon. But grace was given to each one of us, that is the, the, the favor of God, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, now notice especially this, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men, ultimately in reference to Jesus. Now, you look at that on the overhead, and it's just all a part of this big paragraph here. If you have your own Bible, however, it will probably be set apart from, from the margins, right? Which is an indication, if you look at the footnote of your Bible, that that comes from Psalm 68. That's the reason why we sang it earlier. Now, Psalm 68, interestingly, was written 1,000 years before Jesus even came on the scene. And yet it's speaking about Jesus, and, and it's anticipating the Messiah, Jesus, to come. When you, when, you, when you think of Psalm 68, you think of the beginning of the psalm, and it begins on a very muscular note. Let God arise, and by his might, put his enemies to flight with shame and consternation. That's the cry of the people of God. And then God does precisely that. He subdues the enemies beneath their feet, and we see that all throughout the Old Testament, that he defeats the enemies of his people when they place their trust in him. Then we find in the very middle of the psalm, and oftentimes that, that when you get to a, a middle of a portion of the Bible, you begin to see that that's really a very important point. And that's so too in Psalm 68. In the middle of Psalm 68, we, we read, um, if you put it up there, the, uh, the next one. Come on, keep going. There you go. We read these words. You, in reference to God, ascended on high and led a host of captives in your train and received gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Um, if you go to the Old Testament as a whole, you find various images here and there of God defeating his enemies. And here in Psalm 68, we receive the idea that, that God not only exercises power over the enemies, but he leads captives into the capital and he receives the spoils of victories from those over whom he has exercised victory. Okay? Now, there, there is one... Uh, uh, you, you read in a few commentators this. It's kind of interesting. Some will actually draw upon one instance of the Old Testament as an example. Uh, during the time of the book of Judges, 
right? The people of God are now in the promised land and they're in the process of driving the various tribes of the land out because God said, I'm giving that land to you. There's various tribes there, but I'm, I want you to drive them out because that land ultimately belongs to you. And so that's what they were, they were doing, at least in part. And there was a point, uh, uh, there was a one point of a scary point, kids, where, where the, the God's people were facing a very powerful enemy called the Canaanites. And the king of the Canaanites was a man named Jabin, and his military commander was Sisera. And Sisera had at his disposal 800 iron chariots and thousands of military personnel to fight against the Israelites who were just a bunch of ragtag group of people who didn't have much of a military presence, but they had God, and that was a good thing. So we need to understand that those 900 chariots were a big deal because this is technologically during the time of the Iron Age, and they had developed iron at that time for for weaponry. The Israelites didn't have that technology yet, so they were at a disadvantage. So when you're facing 900 chariots against a ragtag group of people, that is the equivalent of like having 800 F-16 jets fighting against another country that has really no military and certainly no air force. I mean, that's how lopsided it was. But God, in so many words, said to his people, listen, I know what you're up against, but I tell you what, if you trust me, I will fight with you and I will fight for you and I will defeat your enemies before you. Well, that's good news. The problem was is that there was a commander named Barak who didn't quite trust that and he got scared. And so what he did is he said to a woman who was a prophetess at the time named Deborah, he says, I'm not going to fight them on my own, but if you go with me, well, then I'll fight. And Deborah said in so many words, he said, okay, I'll go with you. And I tell you what, not if, but when we get the victory from the Lord, that credit is going to go to a woman. Well, that was kind of a slap in the face of Barak, but, you know, he said, okay, you go with me. And she did, and sure enough, Right? They won the victory. And when that was all done, Deborah composed a song. It was kind of an extensive song, but at one point she sings this. And you put the next one up there, please. Deborah writes this, and it's just a small portion of the song. She refers to herself, Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, break out in song. Arise, Barak. Lead away your captives. Have they not divided the spoil? That's just one indication in the Old Testament, of God gaining victory over his people. And you have victory there, but you also have the spoils of victory. That is representative in Psalm 68. Remember I told you you got to keep following me here. That's representative in Psalm 68 of the victory that God gives to his people, right? And, and the, the idea, again, is Psalm 68, that God exercises power of the enemies, and then those enemies are led as captives into, the, into, into Jerusalem, and then God takes the spoils of victory. He receives the, the spoils of victory. Now, I want you to notice something rather interesting. You don't have to put the Ephesians passage on. Just leave it there for just a moment. I'm going to read you something. And if you have your Bibles, take a look at verse 7. Here, the Apostle Paul cites Psalm 68, but he makes a little change. He writes, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he, it doesn't say he received gifts from men, like Psalm 68, but he gave gifts. He gave them. Ultimately, this is a reference to the ascended Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of God. And when he ascended at the right hand of God, not only, like God of Psalm 68, does he declare victory over the powers of darkness 
And not only does he receive the spoils of victory, but he actually gives those spoils of victory, those gifts, to his people. He showers those. In other words, he receives the spoils of victory and then he shares them with us. He shares those gifts with us. So that the catechism puts it like this. By his Holy Spirit now, he, he doesn't give a trickle. He pours out his heavenly gifts upon us as members. I'll give you a little bit of a breather. Kids, it's like this. A few years ago, I went back to my small town and it was during the, uh, in, in the U.S. It was during the July 4th weekend, which is a big deal, of course, in the U.S. And, and I remember growing up as a kid, they, they would have these little celebrations and they would involve the kids and they would have, I don't know, they would, uh, it, was, it was a farming area, so they would bring in all kinds of watermelons and they would cut them on the street and it was free watermelon for everybody who wanted it and they had other things going on. It was a big deal. And at this celebration, they had, um, they had, um, a back street, and it had all these floats coming in, right? All these vehicles that were pulling floats and floats of various businesses and what have you. And I remember, I don't remember this as a kid, but they did it a couple years ago. We had this guy, what a great job, but he had this guy, and he had this big, almost like a, a, a some kind of container, and he would dig in there, and he would fling candy. And, go, and then a few minutes later, he'd go, Whoosh! and he kept flinging all the candies. And all these little kids would come, and they'd run into the street, and they'd pick up... They pick up all this, all, this, all this free candy, you know. It's like, and I thought about that when I thought about Jesus just pouring out these gifts and God's people receiving these gifts of the Spirit. But what kind of gifts are we talking about? What kind of presence are we talking about? Well, you know, um, when, when you, and, and I'm going to bring you to a few passages in just a moment, but when you read your Bible and you read about these gifts, and when it says here, that he gave gifts to men, or to God's people, we could say. Um, those gifts come in different forms. Um, one of them is material gifts, obviously. Um, that's what we focused on this morning, right, when I, when I preached on giving and how we are to, 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 to give of back to God of the rich material gifts that he has given us. But when our passage is talking about gifts, and when a catechism talks about heavenly gifts, it's not talking first and foremost about material gifts. It's talking about, about what we call spiritual gifts. And, and those spiritual gifts come under two primary headings, what we call, bear with me here, soteric gifts and service gifts. Now when I talk about soteric gifts, that, this, that is in connection with the word that Guys, when they go to seminary and they learn theology, learn one of the, one of the what they call the loci or segments of systematic theology is what we call soteriology, which is basically the doctrine of salvation. So when I'm talking about the Holy Spirit giving us soteric gifts, I'm talking about the gifts that, that God, the, the, the gift of the Spirit that God gives us to draw us to Jesus and to keep us in Jesus. For instance, um, we talk about the teaching of what we call regeneration or spiritual rebirth. And spiritual birth points to the fact that, that we in and of ourselves are, as the Bible says, dead in our trespasses and sins. And we have no capacity, nor do we have the will, to want to do anything with Jesus at all. We are spiritually dead. That's why we need the Spirit to come into us and in a sense give us divine CPR to resuscitate our dead selves so that we come to life 
and we see the, beautiful, the beauty and the blessing of Jesus Christ. We all need to be born again, says the Bible. That, that can't happen apart from the gift of the Spirit. It's also the Spirit who not only gives us rebirth, but he gives us the gift of faith, whereby we take hold of Jesus Christ. It's the Spirit who is behind the doctrine of what we call sanctification. That is our growth in Christ. We can't grow apart from the Spirit and the Word. It's the Spirit who causes us to persevere in this life and to keep going when the times get tough and we want to give up and sometimes we want to walk away from the faith. And it's the Spirit that says, no, you're not walking um, away from the faith. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to keep you running in the ways of Christ. It's the Spirit who gives us little foretastes of the new creation to come that break out of the future and into the here and now. It's the Spirit who gives us the gift of eternal life. Now tell me that that's not important. And that's not a gift. That's the greatest present of all. Soteric gifts. But there's also what we call, and I think this is the, the real focus of the catechism at this point, and also, uh, more importantly, Ephesians chapter 4, is what we call service gifts. Service gifts. These are gifts that are abilities or talents that God gives us that, that allow us to build each other up and minister to each other, and also minister to the world. And when you look at Ephesians chapter 4, it talks about he gives gifts to men, but it never really defines what those gifts are. So how are we supposed to figure that out? We go elsewhere in the Bible. So I want to take you to a few passages now. Go to the next passage, if you would. 1 Peter 4, verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I hope you did not come to pathway to be served, but to serve, to be a blessing to others and to be a blessing to the nations of the world. Each of us has received a gift. Kids, you have a gift. And sometimes you're not sure what that gift is until you get a bit older. Every one of us as adults, you know, if you are in Christ, you have a gift, or plural, you have a gifts. You have gifts. That, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you examples of those gifts in just a moment, but each of us are to employ those gifts for the blessing of each other and also the world. Go to the next one, if you would. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are a variety of service, but the same Lord, and there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. To each has been given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Where do, those spirit, uh, where do those gifts come from? They come from the Spirit of God. These are not just natural abilities that you happen to have when you're born into this world. They're gifts of God through the Spirit. Right? Go to the next one, one final one. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use our gifts if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if it's service, well, then in our serving. If it's teaching, then in our teaching. If contributing, then generously. If leading, then with zeal. If in acts of mercy, then with cheerfulness. You know, when Ephesians chapter 4 talks about the heavenly gifts that we get through the Holy Spirit of the ascended Christ, is talking about something really rich and really varied. Christ is not, God is never stingy. And God is never stingy with his gifts. And that, my friends, is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Now, 
On a practical note, think about the kind of gifts we got here. Think about the gifts we have here. Um, we have what are called service gifts, where we have opportunities to serve one another. Sometimes, you know, that, that simply writing a, a card to someone who is grieving. Sometimes it's something as simple as serving someone a cup of coffee over here. Sometimes it's as simple as, as assembling chairs, which is a big deal when you're a church that's starting out and you're worshiping in a gym. Before the service, I was assembling some of the chairs. All of a sudden, I see two girls, and they're, they're doing the same thing. And they're like, man, you do a good job with that. You know? I mean, that, you may say that's a small thing. It's a big thing. It's a gift. It's a form of service. There are what we call teaching gifts. A number of you are teachers. Um, you know, before the service started, there were, there were a number of adults who were working with some of the children of the congregation, and I'm not sure all of what they were doing, but the adults said, we're going to serve those kids, and we're going to teach them when we have the opportunity. We have catechism teachers. We have, we have um, I mean, what am I doing now? I'm teaching or preaching. So God gives these various teaching gifts to the church, all right? Um, there, there, there are tech gifts. We have sound system. We have an AV system. We have a website. We have music gifts, which God is continuing to develop here. So um, we have organizational gifts. There's all kinds of things. If you're going to do well in the ministry of the church, you need people who have administrative or organizational gifts. So you see the point. We could go on and on, but each of us has a gift, and when those gifts are exercised, that is a beautiful thing to behold. By the way, we also have leadership gifts. If you put that one final quote, this comes from Ephesians 4. Notice, and he, in reference to Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ. Those are offices of the church. And notice the operative word there. It's that third word there, gave. The word gave carries with it the idea of a gift. Part of the gifts that Christ gives to his spirit to the church is leadership. Where would we be with proper, without proper leadership? You know, So it's as if Jesus goes, you know what, Pathway? You've developed as a new church. I know exactly what you need. Now the question is, are you going to step up to the plate to use those gifts? And are you going to be a blessing to each other? Right? Now, I want to mention this one final thing as, as I want to start uh, drawing to a, a close here. Um, what would happen if we didn't really have any gifts here? I mean, what would happen if, if Christ never ascended to the right hand of God and never poured forth these gifts? Uh, I think we'd be a pretty dull and ineffective um, and really unhealthy place, honestly. Or, or, or think of this. Think, think if... if if, if Christ gave us, not no gifts, but if he gave us many gifts and varied gifts, what kind of place would we be if, if we thought, well, you know, when I come to Pathway, I want, I, I'm, I don't know, uh, I, I want an easy place to go and a very convenient place to go, and I just want to sit there and I want to be left alone, which I hope is never, not, not one of us here. Okay, I hope we want, we want to be involved to a degree. But what happened if we had gifts, we simply didn't want to use them? Or what happens if we have gifts, but we've never been asked? That happens all the church, too, and I'm sure that's happened to you. Maybe some of you have gifts, like I was never asked what, what gift I could use. Um, and that's why 
organization among the leadership to, to ensure that people's gifts are being utilized. We're never going to do that perfectly, but we're, we're trying to go about doing that. Um, but, but what happens if you never ask, or what happens if you just want to be passive, you never want to use those gifts? Well, then again, the church is going to be a very dull and ineffective and unfruitful place. Or finally this, what if Christ poured forth gifts upon his church, but those gifts were mostly of the same nature? So what happens if Christ poured gifts upon us, but all of us had different forms of teaching gifts? I think we'd be a pretty heady church and a very doctrinally aware church, but I don't think we'd necessarily be a very living church. Or, or what happens if the, on, on the opposite end of the spectrum, Christ gave a lot of service gifts, a lot of mercy gifts, and a lot of gifts of compassion, but not many teaching gifts? Well, then we'd be a pretty superficial body, not very doctrinally aware, and very susceptible to, as the book of Ephesians says, every wind of doctrine. That's not healthy either. But the beautiful thing is that Christ, who is spirit, has poured forth varied and many wonderful gifts to make this a very beautiful and very, hopefully, effective and very healthy place. Right? And as the Lord adds people here, may they be put to use, and may we, may we increase in our service to each other and our love for each other and also for the world. So here's my conclude, com, uh, concluding point, and we have a little bit of discussion. The session of Christ, that is, Christ being seated at the right hand of God, is never in the Bible considered as, you know, just kind of a footnote, or it's never considered as just an insignificant afterthought where we say, oh yeah, that's right, uh, Christ rose and then he ascended. Oh, that's right, he was seated at the right hand of God. You know, like an afterthought? No, the session of Christ is the source of our security because he's the reigning king who preserves and protects us. But Jesus at the right hand of the Father is not only our source of security, but our source of service to one another and the world. He's the gifting Savior. And that, my friends, is the significance of Jesus being seated at the right hand of God. And that, my friends, is ultimately good news for us, right? Now, before we have discussion, let's have some prayer together. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for the teaching services. Um, Lord, I grow through them, and I trust, Lord, we grow through them as well as we see the significance of the person and the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we pray that we may take great comfort in Jesus as our King and as head of the church, but, Lord, we also pray that the gifts that you have bestowed upon us by your Spirit may be put into place here and become effective and a blessing, not only for our sakes, but also for the sake of the world. So, Father, we bring this to you, and we pray this all in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.